Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about everything scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 448, is recorded live May 21st, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we're slowly getting out of detention. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Well, so far, I'm doing so good, and it's a beautiful day. Oh. Went out to uh, the beach a little bit, and people are gathering, but they are practicing isolation if you're not them. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I, I still think we need to keep a little bit of distance going on here, but... Uh, what I, I just wish that we would have uh, trusted some businesses to be able to put some plans in place because it seems like it's we we think of it as a light switch. It's either off or on. And uh, as, as somebody of the family of four members, all that were essential workers, we've all had to uh, to learn how to deal with this challenge. And I wish other businesses had the same opportunity who weren't originally deemed essential. Uh, you know, I should knock on wood, but at our location, which is three buildings, we have 400 employees with zero cases of COVID, which let, you know, watch me curse it, then we'll, we'll come down with it. But, you know, since uh, day one, we've been continue to work as essential workers. Well, you must be doing something right also. Well, it, as we're starting to see the information come back, I think considering the level of we we've been pretty fortunate that we don't have an occupation where people have to touch you know a lot of it's running machinery and material handling and a lot of the, you know in, in my group in information technology um we can distance fairly easily and then we've been working from home i work from home as much as i can but you know sometimes there's certain things you you got to actually come in and touch the equipment so uh, that's worked out pretty well so i i'd say we're we're to that point where you know you were grounded but now uh and you had to come home from school right away but now you just have to be home in time for dinner so still still not all the way out of it but uh l- a little bit looser uh hopefully people have been able to get some opportunity to get them diving in as some of the first articles we have in the show notes uh we've been pretty fortunate in michigan that uh diving was an activity that was considered exercise, even though we did have some of the challenges with getting in a boat, but there are still countries uh, that have re- restricted access that believe that you can't scuba dive, which we'll, we'll touch on here in a bit. Oh, and then I have to apologize to everybody for not recording last week, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and I'm going to blame it on the virus. Do, do you get so many like mulligans or something where you can blame something that's your fault on something else like the virus? Well, hopefully the virus is not your fault, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, I, I'm I've always been terrible with dates, and uh, you know, I was it was about five o'clock uh, last Thursday, and I was getting all the show notes put together, and uh, I it became painfully aware I had, I had forgotten an important date, uh, and you know, my 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 kids and my wife's birthdays are all in December, so it wasn't that one. Uh, but care care to guess which which important date I I had completely spaced out on? Anniversary. You got that right. <laughs> 
anniversary. So that's more, uh, that's more important than the birthday, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, my wife and I on birthdays and stuff like that, uh, we, we usually don't make a big deal that that all came out of, uh, you know, when we were first married and together is that you know, you're, we were quite broke. And if you stopped living to the budget to go and get somebody something else, you know, it was just easier to kind of, you know, we joke about three months in advance and say, Hey, we're getting this. This is the, uh, Christmas anniversary birthday gift. So, uh, going on that premise, we had already gotten gifts a long time ago, but it's still important to remember the date, which I realized last Thursday. So only 32 years. So, which uh, that means I got married when I was four, <laughs> 32 years. Heading up there. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I joined the dive club, they, there was like a curse going on. They said nobody made it past 25. So, and I think I was probably at about 24, 23 years at that. Nah, I was probably. Nah, come on. That's not true. Cause mine's 50 something. Yeah. Yeah. You, you did well, but, uh, and to, to save the innocent and the guilty, we won't mention any names, but there were, there were a few who all chimed in who, uh, like hit 24 or 25 and things kind of went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> I've also heard that happens when you're retired, but, uh, luckily I'm never going to be in financial shape to retire. So I'll be okay. We'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have quite a following this week. We have Karen and Eric and Derek and Dave all in the chat room. Thank you for listening. And also uh shout out to uh new Patreon supporters. So if you haven't, you know, if you're faring pretty well through this and you're getting any enjoyment or value from the show, we certainly would appreciate your support. Go to www.scoobobsessed.com and click on over the Patreon link. I just had to click on all sorts of things because, uh, it must be Patreon's become a big deal now because uh, they're now have to collect sales tax. So I had to answer a whole bunch of questions about our tiers. So you'll notice some things have been removed from the wording just because uh, we didn't want to give any governmental entities extra money that they really aren't entitled to. So, so the first article we have kind of follows that COVID theme. We have Quebec has announced a gradual reopening of outdoor sports, and they had that starting on May 20th. Of the activities that were going to be allowed that had not been previously included cycling, golf, tennis, hiking, rock climbing, and several water sports, and one of those named water sports happened to be scuba diving. Uh, Water sports can be practiced if they're on a single boat among recreational activities can resume next week. Uh, and it's a bunch of Quebec names, which I'm not going to slaughter. Some hiking and biking trails is around some uh, lakes for day fishing will be accessible independently. That is to say, without access to service buildings such as reception stations and toilets. <laughs> Just kind of a, a side thing here. Did did you see some of the posts on Facebook where they show that they closed the pit outhouse, but then they put a portage on in? Yeah, I've seen that. And well, and I and I felt sorry for truckers because if you go through most of these truckers' bathrooms, well, not even call them trucker bathrooms, just rest stops along the highway, those are some of the easiest to clean facilities. They're tile. If you've watched anybody clean them, they come in with a hose. I mean, it's just they're set for no contact cleaning, and all those have been shut down. Really? Yeah. I well, and I it just doesn't that. make. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, originally, I think they were doing it because they they didn't want it as a vector for access and in michigan we're in really sad financial shape because imagine this if you don't have businesses working you have no tax revenue 
that's kind of surprising, isn't it? Mm. Sort of goes so, together. Yeah, yeah. So w- without getting down the political thing, but uh, here, here they're talking about they're closing the bathrooms, which uh, I guess that's one way to make sure you don't venture too far from home. Uh, even though the public health directives are on reopening been delayed in the Montreal metropolitan area, which has been hardest hit by COVID-19 pandemic, Montreal allers, is that what you call them? Montrealers will be no exception this time at the press conference. Minister Charest said she wanted to prevent city dwellers from being tempted to leave the city to clear their minds. This revival of sports, leisure and outdoor activity should not be used as a pretext for gathering and trips between regions. She added, Along with the minister, Richard Massey, the strategic medical advisor, the public health branch said that the next wave of activities that will get the green light from authorities could include supervised outdoor training, then competitions. Unwilling to provide a timetable of subsequent phases, Charest stressed that we should not expect a full recovery this summer. It is certain that we will not have sports offering we've had in the past. Asked about team sports that are more popular as young Quebecans. Quebecers, such as soccer, Massey raised the possibility of authorizing them by altering practices in order to minimize the number of players and the contact between them. What? Okay. Uh, sport federations and national leisure and outdoor organizations have been called on to prepare instructions adapted for each discipline. Sports and leisure in Quebec have never been more mobilized. In addition, citizens who hope to be able to cool off in public swimming pools this summer might be allowed because chlorinated water would not be conducted the spread of COVID-19. Who is more worried about the possible lack of respect for physical distance measures in such context? Municipalities should, however, have the final say in opening their facilities. For day camps, campgrounds, reopening continues to be studied. Here, a complete list of activities authorized for that May 20th date. Whitewater and calm water canoeing and kayaking, running, rock climbing, kite surfing, day fishing, paddle boarding, scuba diving, outdoor sports apnea, outdoor sports apnea. Is that sleeping? Horse riding, hiking, surfing, athletics, rowing, speed canoe and kayaking, outdoor cycle activities, golf, sea kayaking, open water swimming in lakes, roller skating on roads and tracks, roller skiing, outdoor singles tennis, triathlon, open water swimming only, sailing, single boat only. I know. That's what I was thinking, Karen. Th- thanks, Karen, saying apnea has a pause in breathing. So they had scuba diving and open sports apnea. I'm all in one line, outdoor or so outdoor sports apnea. Is that breath holding, like free diving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. I'm surprised I had surfing is uh, not letting you, letting you do that before. It's pretty much single effort item. The surfing, the same well, thing with kiting, and what little rock climbing I did back in my youth. That wasn't a group. <laughs> no, well, th- there's been and it, it the thing with this uh, COVID response is that some areas let things that probably shouldn't have happened happen all along, and then others stayed way too long with not opening certain activities up. So uh, in Michigan, we were pretty fortunate right from the beginning that outdoor activities were not stopped. Uh, so for me, you know, other than not being able to go in town and visit people who, you know, like we haven't had, a, what, a dive club meeting in three months now? Yep. Yeah, so... You know, those would be the type of activities that have really been interrupted. But being rural, you know, low low density population, even when you're talking to neighbors, I mean, ninety percent of the time when I talk to a neighbor, I'm you know we're you know forty yards away chatting. You know, it's not like we're we're right next to each other, so we have kind of social dis- distancing built in. 
so I think that these were like horse riding, you know, your horse is almost your social distancing, you know, unless you're riding double. I mean, you've got, you know, your, your horse is a perfect social distancing space. So, yeah. And maybe they're just, I know they've opened up parks and stuff. Even today, like uh, Silver Beach is going to have alternate parking, and I think they're only going to allow 20 or 25% parking at Silver Beach. They'll keep the separation. Gene Clock today, there was no cars closer than two spaces. People who were on the beach were in groups of family. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're practicing it, which yeah. is very smart, very smart. All right. Well, the thing with social distancing, which I think is where we went, is it's like, We've all got laws that say you shouldn't kill somebody, but yet we still do it. So a lot of these needed to be, we could have avoided a whole lot of problems by just wording things and put the responsibility on the individuals to follow them instead of trying to define what activities we don't believe they can do without social distancing. And, and that's what this list appears to be. Like you said, kite surfing, uh, you know, you didn't need to specifically say you could or couldn't do it. You just need to say, here's the rules and this is what you do. Now, the exception to that is crowded bars. Like uh, in Northern Michigan, they just opened that up uh, this for this weekend. But there was an example of one bar. He said with the social distancing, his bar's not wide enough for there to even be social distancing. Like you can't walk through the bar without it. So he, he his bar which normally has spot for 20. He said he may, he may have been able to do four and they could never enter or leave. So there's a lot of businesses who just aren't going to be able to, in these beginning phases, be able to open up. And then this next article from DiverNet uh, says something. It says scuba remains off limits in the UK. Uh, it said scuba divers hoping for relaxation, English lockdown restrictions to enable more exercise to be taken might allow for the same households to resume the sport, have been disappointed. This week's phased-in official guidance has been widely recognized as confusing and open to interpretation of specific areas. A response from the UK government press office to a diver net request for clarification simply drew attention to a newly updated social distancing guideline for England, which makes no mention of the sport other than tennis, golf, and basketball. However, the British diving Safety Group, BDSG, was convened online on the 12th of May to determine how the changes might affect the diving community. The training agency's medical experts and supporting industry representatives presented present concluded that the infrastructure to safely support diving activities is still lacking and requires more time to sell to reestablish itself, reported Di Atkins, National Diving Officer for Sports Governing Body of the British Subaquatic Club. Contamination risks remains too high during the preparation for diving, said Atkins, adding that diving businesses trying to operate safely within the law could experience undue pressure result. More importantly, should emergency support be necessary, this would place an unacceptable high burden to rescue services and medical treatment facilities at a time when they're already stretched. We should be considerate of the impact any activity could have until such time with supporting infrastructure can safely operate at full capacity in line with government guidance. With regret, we must encourage divers to act responsibly and not go diving. However safe as it may seem to do so, we will continue to work together to provide suitable guidance to support a planned return to safe diving as and when the time is right. Further BDSG consultants were expected to take place, but only coincided with the further changes in government guidance. So they did kind of what I was suggesting, but it seems like even that 
has been confusing where they haven't specifically said what activities are allowed. Uh, I, I but, found it awkward, though, if they're saying, if you hurt yourself diving, you're going to have to call people, therefore you're a hazard to them. But everybody drives a car, and you're more than likely got more problems with cars and accidents, more people doing it than going diving. Secondary, right. if I go solo diving, since I don't use a, a dry suit when it starts getting nice, there's absolutely no reason I can't go with that exception of, well, what if I have a heart attack? Well, if I had a heart attack diving or not diving, you're right. still going to have people come into. So that that logic is a little bit skewed, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. And I think for as, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but as we're seeing the the amount of problems that uh, this has been causing, uh, specifically in uh, emergency personnel, we haven't, it, it hasn't been to the capacity that we haven't been able to handle it. That was some of the arguments. In certain on. areas. In certain yeah. areas. Yeah. If, if you're in a place where the hospitals are loaded up and. Yeah. Detroit. Rampant. Yeah. You just need everybody just to stay home. But, uh, you know, they had a no burning order. And that was because if you had a, if you did a burning, had a grass fire and the fire department came out, they didn't want them to be in close proximity and exposed. So they were saying less calls is safer, but yeah. So, uh, so there you are in the UK. That's what they've got, uh, here in Michigan. Uh, I don't think there are really any restrictions. I've seen some dive shops have been doing, uh, pool dives for checkout. So. It must be they feel like they've got a facility where they can do the proper social distancing. But as soon as you go into the shower area, you know, I mean, it's it's like a bathroom. How do you decon that? People have finished, isn't it? Yeah. Karen, Karen was saying uh, 80% of the patients in the Ascension Rochester Hospital last month had COVID. They're almost completely full. What location is that? Uh, is that uh, Rochester's at New York? Oh, Detroit area? Yeah. Yeah, we we know that Detroit had it quite quite bad. Yeah, because I've been following the Lakeland here uh, pretty closely. I, I religiously every day I look. Uh, you know, they they've been nowhere near capacity. Ventilator usage has not gone above twenty five percent. It's rarely been above twenty one percent, and it's typically about fourteen to seventeen percent utilization. Uh, I've got a family member who's working the emergency room. And out of the whole emergency staff, there's only been two people since the start of this with COVID, and they were a couple. So most likely one of them got it and then passed it on to the other one. So the the measures are taken there in the hospital. It seems to have worked out pretty well. Uh, CNN, a man lost his, uh, oh, wait, no, I skipped one, didn't I? Yeah, Surfer 26 is killed in a shark accident in Northern California Beach that was closed to the public because of coronavirus. Is this the, this the virus? Saying you're, I'm going to get you one way or another. The surfer was killed by a shark attack in a Northern California beach. State park officials said on Saturday, and this was May uh, 10th, a 26 year old man was surfing off the what was that Manresa State Beach in the northern end of Monterey Bay, about 100 yards from the shore, just before 1:30 p.m. Was attacked by an unknown shark species. The California park said in a statement. Photos captured by KTVU showed rescue crews on the shortly after the incident. Police and ambulance vehicles were seen in the beach parking lot. The victim's name has not been released. Santa Cruz Sheriff's deputies notified the man's family. According to the California State Parks website, 
the beach is fully closed from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. daily amid the coronavirus pandemic. What's fully closed? Um, if you went up to, I'm trying to think of the one of the parks around here, the gates and everything were shut down. Uh-huh. Two weeks ago, they were right, open. But- then suddenly they're not. They were blocked so you couldn't. Right. So here they're showing, he says it's fully clo- closed from 11 a.m. Let me get back to that spot. It's fully clo- closed from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. daily. So is it open the other times? No. Because that's odd. You would just say fully closed. You wouldn't say and then have a time. 11 a.m. So is it like surfers can go in in the morning and then the evenings or for exercise or is it just too hot? Is that what they, I'm, I'm not, you know, maybe somebody who knows could drop us a line and explain what that is. Uh, and then they go into some details talking about other shark attacks, but that's, uh, yeah. What, uh, what I thought was like odd happen. about it was where the shark attack was at, they closed mm-hmm. the water one mile north and south of that as if the shark is not going to swim somewhere else maybe. Well, sharks are very cognizant of uh, warnings. So if you close an area, they, they won't they won't cross that line. Oh, that's you know, probably true. Yeah, yeah. They, <clears throat> yeah. If it was illiterate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, shark attack occurrence 519 in this area within 100 yards offshore water sports activities highly discouraged. Is it just a case they overlooked that park? Hmm. Seems like you could have like billboards, you know, like some sort of, you know, because where it was, as you enter the park, it could give you some sort of conditions. I would think you would have flag signals for something like that also. I mean, a red flag not only is for bad water conditions, but riptide, yeah. heavy surf, I don't know, maybe it applies to sharks too. Yeah. Well, and I'm picturing surfers are kind of like, hey, the only good diving is when the red flag's up. <laughs> that's that's probably true too, though. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, when there's an undertow is when it's great for us. And then uh, CNN reported he lost his prosthetic leg while he was surfing. Weeks later, a 13-year-old found it. Finding unusual objects on a scuba dive is not uncommon, but no one prepares you to find someone else's leg. It all started when 13-year-old Sebastian Morris went scuba diving with his dad in St. Andrews State Park, three miles east of Panama City, Florida. They were over to jetties on May 9th when something caught his eye. It was kind of shine, so my natural reaction was, okay, it might be treasure, so let's go take a look. He drove, he dove down and tried to free it from the sand. After several attempts, it was still stuck. His dad saw the struggle, came over to help. And after one final tug, they realized the object had been, they'd been trying to free was a prosthetic leg. My first reaction was, oh my gosh, it's hilarious. So many thoughts were going through my head. Like, how did he lose it? What happened? Why did he have lost a leg? Morris said when they were heading back to shore, Morris realized the leg probably belonged to someone. He decided to try and find the owner. With the help of his dad, they started a Facebook page to spread the word. Within a few days, they found out the leg beyond, uh, belonged to surfer Carter Hess. Hess had been surfing the beginning of April, got hit by a large wave. He told CNN that right away he knew his prosthetic leg was gone. He and his friends went back to look for it, but without scuba gear, it was impossible to find. Then weeks later, something crazy happened. Every time prosthetic leg gets washed up a beach, my friends tag me in it. They think it's hilarious. So I get tagged in a post. I'm like, ha but then I click on and look at the picture and realize... That really is yours, dude. Hess followed up the post by messaging Morris's dad after getting in touch with Morris's. They decide to meet up at a restaurant to give Hess's back his leg. Restaurant? What date is that? 2020. California's got restaurants? Morrison's mom met Hess at Wednesday at one of the newly reopened restaurants. After successfully returning the prosthetic leg, the two decide to go diving together with Morris's dad that gets back in town. 
I would think if I had a prosthetic, I would definitely have something tattooed or scripted, lasered into the side of the lake saying it belongs to me. It would think so. Or you would think that there'd be some sort of serial number or manufacturer yeah, where you, yeah. you'd be able to contact them up because that's, you look at that leg, that top, I mean, I'm no expert, but that's custom fitted. That almost looks like some sort of carbon fiber. It, I mean, that, that's gotta be in the thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. I'd just be my uneducated guess. Yeah, and it's, they're, not, and it's, they're not inexpensive by any stretch. Yeah. And, uh, it's already custom made because, you know, they're molding that they, it wouldn't be hard for them to put some sort of identification on it. And that might have, and they just not, didn't use that aspect. Uh, making yeah, maybe, this maybe interesting. Yeah. And then scuba diver magazine had a press release. They're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, which has halted many businesses, large and small across the world's right questions about cleanliness and sanitation in all industries. With local authorities and officials starting to allow business to resume operations, it begs the question, how do we move forward? More importantly, what do we do while minimizing the risk for workers and the general public alike? To address these concerns, First Response Training International has created an airborne pathogen workplace training course, an e-learning program designed to teach businesses everything they need to know about maintaining a safe workplace environment amidst the viral outbreak. Best of all, this course is being offered at no cost for the foreseeable future. Upon completion of the course, learners will be able to download, print a certificate, complete the authentication and knowledge preventing the transmission of disease like COVID-19, the flu, and others. And I have wondered why this hadn't come out earlier in my uh, time in public safety and first responding. We used to get training all the time on uh, similar to this. And it seems like this should have been done. The chat room thinks that Craig maybe didn't make it, but let me just double check it. I Let's see him back He's still on mine. Yeah, he, he's back on now. It's because when I when I looked at it, it said he was disconnected. What are you gonna do? I'm gonna bug Craig again. I mean, he he's he's definitely connected now. No, we mainly maybe no, we had him. He he joined at four forty three. Yeah, and then we lost him at ten fifteen. So I, I may edit this out. Hopefully, this little dialogue I remember to edit out, but frequently not. Uh yeah. So uh, I mean, training. I think that's the the best thing to do is educate people and. But if you're giving classes and items like this, you're going to have to be a lot more careful with the number of students you have. Equipment decon would be a big issue, I would think. Mm-hmm. Same thing for the, the facilities for changing if or something. So it's going to be, it seems like it would be cost more, meaning it would not necessarily be cost effective to try to do it, but as opposed to going broke, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And that's the thing with the restaurants and some of the businesses is that you've got many industries that the density of people in your establishment, the number of terms and how many seats you have, determines whether it's profitable. Yep. So you're going to have to change that business, maybe significantly, like in the case of a restaurant, significantly simplify the menu, you know, change how people dine, you know, the type of food done. Uh, in a kitchen, how how do you that? That's what I don't understand. To certain businesses, how do you? Well, you have one. Co- I mean, it, it's got to take some, be some challenges on preserving food. I, I think there's a lot of businesses that couldn't social distance in the beginning, but because they were exempt, they continued on, and now they may not be in compliance. Well, some of these newer ones that are using the robotics, uh, mm-hmm. that's going to be a really godsend for them because 
Have you seen some of those? It's automated, basically. And it's like you go to a vending place. So you can go open up the little door, put your money in, open up the doorway, get your fresh sandwich. Oh, the, the Vendomat or uh, yeah, whatever. They, and they're done, done by vo- robots. Mm-hmm. Now, that's got to be a cool one because you don't need the people. Yeah, there, there, that used to be a big thing. There was a chain of restaurants. I mean, it was before my time. I mean, I guess in like New York and the East Coast, it, they were common. Uh, but they went out of business. They went out. But I, the buffets, if you, have you noticed that a lot of the buffets, their plans are not to be buffets anymore? Uh, like, uh, I would not. I'd be very hesitant to use them. Yeah, even with the buffet, even with the sneeze shields, it's not yeah. always the best. Yeah, yeah, and they, that's always been problems. Uh, yes. So, so old the all, all the many of the the businesses that had buffets or salad bars are eliminating that. They're not going to have that as part of their service when they reopen their dining rooms. Well, this next article it has the head of a sea lion. Seen in Vic West was likely taken as a trophy. Head of a decapitated sea lion that washed ashore in Vic West is likely taken as a trophy, says a president of the indigenous group lobbying for expanded pinniped harvesting rights. When Vic West resident Paul Primus first saw the sea lion last week, the head was still attached. The carcass remained in the Songhees walkway for a few days, and then mysteriously, said Primus, who lives nearby and visits most days, Somebody went down there and cut the head off. Why would somebody do that? There have been several recent reports of headless sea lions on shores near Campbell River, and in 2013, at least four sea lions are found without heads in a five-month period. At the time, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans said they were looking into whether it was emerging trade in animal skulls. Tom Seward, president of Pacific Balance Marine Management, said he had seen online posts of buyers looking for sea lion skulls. We are seeing headless sea lions washing up on the beaches. It's telling me that someone's found out that there's a black market where you can sell those skulls, said Seawood. Uh, the commercial fisherman who splits his time between Nanimo and Washington State, Seward said someone might have cut off the head to keep it as a trophy, saying go put the, school in the, the skull on the mantelpiece. Uh, he believes the old protection of pinnipeds such as seals and sea lions have led to the overpopulation of animals and their appetite for salmon is affecting fish stocks and resident orca populations. They're lobbying to be allowed to harvest some of the animals more widely. The removal of a head is an indication that was taken by someone who is non-indigenous to had said because he or other first nation hunters harvest the whole animal, particularly hides which can be used to make regalia. According to DFO, it's not uncommon for intact dead sea lions to wash ashore in Vancouver Inlet or Island. But from time to time, the individuals may tamper the animals once beached. Hunting sea lions is banned in British Columbia, which controlled exceptions for indigenous rights to harvest for food, social, and ceremonial reasons. If the animal is shot in the head, decapitating the animal would recover evidence of illegal hunting. If this is determined to have been done to in an effort to knowingly tamper with evidence, this would be the offense under the Criminal Code of Canada, DFO said in a statement. DFO's Conservation Protection Branch is aware of social media discussions related to Pinniped and is monitoring them. Four of the 77 dead sea lions have been reported to have washed ashore in the island were shot, DFO said in a statement. Animals are sometimes targeted by commercial fishermen who see them as pests because they know to take fish from the net, uh, said Charlotte Daw, Conservation Policy Campaigner for the Wilderness Committee. Sometimes fishermen will shoot sea lions from boats. In the case of animals that Primus discovered in Vic West, the head was removed after the animal came ashore, but that might not always be the case. Rhonda Reedy, a University of Victoria 
PhD candidate studying the foraging behavior of the humpback whales said a sea lion could lose its head to a boat striker naturally after death. If the deceased angels are drifting and decomposing over time, then the weight of the skull can cause the head to naturally dearticulate from the body, she said in an email. Reedy said without examination of carcass, it's impossible to determine if the head was removed by a person or detached naturally. The body of sea lion often drifts ashore after it dies. Anyone spends time in the water or the beach is likely to encounter a carcass eventually, she said. So what's your bet? Washed ashore, decomposing, guy took it. Yeah. That's I, a lot I, of work to make a skull, though. Got to clean it. I, yeah, I don't. A lot. Yeah, I, I don't. My thought is if if you're somebody who has been shooting them and you don't want somebody to know you've been shooting them, then you may occasionally go out. But even that seems like a lot of work because there's no guarantee if you, unless you're you know, just shooting them at a distance, then you've, it seems like you've tied yourself easily to the crime because if you're a boat and you've got a rifle, it would take somebody to have to go get the bullet from the animal and then get your rifle and then do the ballistics on it. And that's a long stretch of being able to tie all that together without witnesses, but going down to cut the head off, you're much more likely to be discovered that way than you are just leaving it. So I'm, um, I, this one, I mean, there's, it, God, yeah, that's, yeah, like you said, it's a lot of work. There'd have to be a pretty good black market to, to be going down the beach for that. Yeah. My wife gets upset when I bring stinky bottles home, you know, <laughs> an animal head. She's not going to be real happy. The, 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 uh, fermenting, uh, head of a sea lion on the mantle isn't going to go real well. No, not too much at all. Even no. the skull. Yeah. And then this one is from uh, 9.com.australia. Air Jaws, the hunted is like an undersea version of a true crime show. And of course, uh, a trigger warning is at the beginning of the article. Is this, this article contains images of dead sharks. So it must be some people had sensitive stomachs and they were a little put out. South Africa was once home to the most iconic great white sharks on the planet, Air Jaws, until early 2017 when the breaching came to an end. The narration from the Discovery Program, Air Jaws, The Hunted, available uh, on stream from Nine Now. Fascinating look at the mysteries surrounding five full-grown white sharks that washed up dead on beaches in South Africa in 2017. These are creatures that are used to being hunters, not hunted. They earn their nickname air jaws because of the way they emerge from the water that kill their prey, mostly seals. So it's baffling when a full-grown female great white shark walks, washes ashore in South Africa in February 2017. Was it Gansby? Shark experts and marine biologists speculate the shark, that she may have accidentally breached herself while trying to escape something in the water. But then more full-grown shark carcasses were discovered in May, with the fifth one washing ashore a month later. Shark biologist Allison Towner was one of the people investigating was terrifying the sharks and causing the death was a poachers another shark. She helped conduct a thorough examination of the second female shark, which provided some clues. We then go to an external examination to assess if there's any interesting clues in the trauma. So the 4.9-meter female notably had a very large gaping wound in the underside of her body cavity. Upon closer inspections, they saw the liver is completely absent. Something had removed the organ with almost surgical precision, and they found it to be consistent with other sharks that had washed ashore. They were realizing that two orcas would become known to locals as port and starboard because of the way they, their collapsed dorsal fins fell. 
were spotted in the water close to where Shark's corpse had been found. Were they the killers? To further investigate, Shark filmmaker Andy, was it Casagrande, and the orca researcher Dr. Ingrid Visser traveled to New Zealand where more carcasses of orcas attacking sharks have been documented. Dr. Visser's extensive research reveals that why the way orcas work together to dis- disorient and attack full-grown sharks. When they come in, they've debilitated the shark. Whether it's a karate chop or ramming, they tend to try and flip it upside down, and that introduces a tonic Im- immobility, and the shark basically becomes catatonic, and they just lie there. Wait, wait a minute. Are you and telling that, me you take a, a shark, tip him upside down, or on his back, and he goes to sleep? Yes, you haven't seen that? No. A, a so lot the next of these, time you uh, by a shark, you just grab his dorsal, roll it over, and he immediately goes to sleep. Do you have to rub his belly like an alligator? Well, so the people tend to do that when they when they get him to go to sleep. Oh, okay. And and if you sing a lullaby, they really like that. Uh, but no, they do. It's uh, there's certain animals where that happens. Um, now you can do that with rabbits, uh, sharks. I've seen it on some of the uh, TV programs during Shark Week that they've. Uh, there are some people who will do that, but. Uh, you got to survive it first. <laughs> you know, can you can you get them upside down? That's not on my agenda to do. Yeah, but they're they're somehow indicating that orcas may have figured it out. And they said at that stage, orca will come in and typically grab it from the pectoral fin. They'll give it a good shake, uh, vicariously, violently, very very hard. Oh, viciously, violently, and very very hard. And when you're underwater, you can actually hear the shark ripping. They sound like Velcro being ripped apart. And then they're going for the liver. That's where they're really targeting. It's a liver they're after. The behavior of the orcas in the film reaffirms why they're known as killer whales. When you look at how the apex predator, like the orca, hunts other apex predators, you see they think about this. There isn't something that you do by mistake. They're calculated. They're very cautious. And sometimes even when it's a sure thing, they'll come in very slowly. They said even if you're not in a shark's marine life, air draws the hunted is captivating viewing experience that showcases how these creatures can be beautiful, terrifying at the same time. It also plays out like a crime show, except the victims and the killers all live in the sea. Yeah. <laughs> Derek in the chat room. Here, hold my beer. <laughs> Surgical precision. That's pretty good. Yeah. Five meters long. Wow. You know, and, and a human, as Karen's pointing out, is only two meters. That, that's a hard flip there. It's one of those bits of information you know, but you hope you don't ever have to try it. Well, how come we're never aware of, you know, we should be aware of orcas when we're diving in the water? It's always watch the sharks, never an orca. I mean, you haven't seen that uh, cartoon with the two orcas, and they're saying, I, I like the, uh, you know, the ones with the yellow on that got the crunchy outsides? No, I haven't seen it. Forty years after the Skyway Bridge disaster, divers can't forget what they saw underwater. Two bridge inspectors helped retrieve victims after the Sunshine Skyway collapsed, and then they tell their story. Robert Rayola never fully left the Skyway. The 73-year-old is there when he recalls inspecting the bridge as a Florida Department of Transportation diver with his friends and former co-worker Michael Betts, 66. He's there when he remembers diving off the boat with his bay and friends, bring back some stuff to cook up with his family. It's where he went to scatter the ashes of his first wife, Nancy, in the waves next to the bridge. When his time comes, he wants to join her. And even though it haunts him, it's not been able to stop thinking about the bridge inspection turned Disaster response the day he this the sunshine skyway bridge collapsed forty years ago this week. He still obsesses over the stormy morning he and Betts spent pulling bodies from a Greyhound bus that had crashed into the base choppy waters. 
He wants his grandchildren to know what he saw. Uh, they started on a rainy morning, May 9th, 1980, with a trip to get breakfast and coffee at the Bunny Hut in US 19. They had planned to talk about a routine inspection work ahead of them, the Skyway that day. Riola, then 33, was a fiery Italian-American with dark mustache, still showing his partner the ropes. Riola had worked at an underwater bridge inspector department transportation for six years, traveling to bridges around the state to inspect structural integrity from the water line down. He loved to share stories about his dive, especially the times he's working among sharks or wrestling off alligators. Betts was a quiet 26-year-old who had recently been discharged after five years in the U.S. Navy underwater photographer. His natural red hair had turned strong, very blonde after the long days swimming in the pool. He was excited to see the new job where he could swim and shoot photos again. He'd only been diving three times before Riola. Two dives had been at the Skyway. The waitress interrupted breakfast when Riola told him that it was a bad joke. The Skyway had just got hit. Soon a crackling radio came from their boss confirming it. There had been a terrible accident. The 19,734-ton Summit Venture freighter lost in a fog. It slammed into support columns the old Skyway Bridge. A 1,200-foot span of the bridge collapsed in the water below. Riola and Betts didn't know what they were about to stumble into, one of the deadliest accidents in Florida history. A truck, six cars, and a Greyhound bus plummeted too far, falling 150 feet before hitting the surface of Tampa Bay. 35 people would die. Beth had only been in the transportation department job for five working days. We were prepared to go that morning, Rayola said with an interview in the Tampa Bay Times that year. If you can imagine being at the situation, it's like joining the fire department on September 6th, and then 9-11 comes and you're climbing the steps to the Twin Towers. The pair rushed to the, was it, Finalis uh, Maintenance Compound in Ulmerton Road, load up their 16-foot FDOT Boston Whaler with gear before driving towards the Skyway. They sped down the incomplete dirt road that would become the Interstate 275. When they finally turned in the U.S. 19, they drove on the shoulders to swerve around the traffic. They slipped past the emergency personnel road barricade to get to O'Neill's marina and finally launched the boat in the channel. As they passed the Skyway's rest area, they finally saw it through the rain of fog, the iconic bridge with a section ripped out and the steel truss dangling over the water. Bets have been a sky way a few days before returning felt like visiting the pyramids in egypt and finding finding a pile of rocks hiding through the water towards the bridge would there be anyone left to rescue near the bridge boat circled the bay looking for floating bodies the eckridge college search and rescue team had trained student divers in st petersburg fire rescue workers on two boats 32 and 24 foot long to look for survivors one of eckridge students was michael roslett then in his early 20s, we had no idea what we were getting into, Roslett said. When they reached the bridge, Riola motored up to one of Eckert's boats. Betts called to the Eckert team to tie off the small DOT boat, the larger Eckert vessel. But Bill Covert, leader of the Eckert team, was confused. This team had been dispatched after the 911 call and was working with the Coast Guard and other agencies, but not DOT. What was the small boat doing? Riola identified himself and he wanted to get in the water and fast. After a tense exchange, Eckert team agreed to let to tie the DOT boat off. They would work together. Then Riola and Betts dove. Betts could see the submerged Greyhound bus wheels up. We may have people on that bus that are trapped in air pockets, Betts thought as he swam down, the, and we're going to bring them out. The bus top was sheared off. The body flipped and partially collapsed. Riola signaled to Betts to wait outside while he entered where the smashed front window should have been. 
He didn't want a chance the two get, of them getting trapped inside a narrow, mangled mess. As he crawled the dark bus alone, he saw a passenger still strapped in their seats upside down. None had survived. It was clear it would be a retrieval, not a rescue. Riola pulled victims to pass the bet, starting with Michael Curtin, the bus driver. He swam up with two victims and handed them to Eckert's team. Betts had seen the tragic things in the Navy, but he never actually removed dead people from the water. He decided to hold the victims by their backs of their shirts. He didn't want to look at their faces. The Greyhound driver was one of the first victims out, Roslett recalls. He can still remember tying the body to the dive platform on the Eckert boat. He also tried avoid tried to avoid looking closely. But Riola prayed as he looked at each one. He held friends in his arms in Vietnam and watched them die. He wanted to pay similar respect to the victims, remembering their humanity, even as he had to use rough treatment to free them from the bus. I'm sorry that I have to do this, he thought. I'll do everything I can to help get you back to your family. Rayola and Bet stove a second time to retrieve more bodies. Rayola grabbed three on his way out of the bus. Rayola saw what looked like a diaper bag. He used to carry around a similar bag when he became a father, where the parent was who owned their child. He planned to return to find them. The last thing he remembered was looking back at the, the massive tangled bodies in the back of the bus, but they wouldn't swim back to the bus a third time. Another storm was covering, coming, and Eckert boats were already filled with bodies. Covert asked the EOT divers to untie their boats so the crew could take the victims to a makeshift morgue at Mullet Key. It was unsafe to say, he said, the portion of the steel roadway was still dangling from the bridge above the boats, like an arrow pointing straight down. Covert told his teams if it fell, the best they could do was jump for it, but the plan made him nervous and he wasn't sure how much time they had. So he called for backup, an on-scene Coast Guard commander with a large gun and a gold badge told the DOT divers to leave. Riola thought if he could have stayed longer, they could have recovered every victim, but it didn't seem right to leave. I was a Marine. You don't leave anybody behind. Riola and Betts returned to Sky with the next day to start a week-long process, documenting the bridge condition and wreckage on the bottom of the bay. For the National Transportation Safety Board, they weren't called for help for further victim retrieval. Riola couldn't stop wondering about the people still in the water especially on Mother's Day, two days after the Skyway fell. I went home, kissed my wife, gave her a big hug, gave my kids a big hug, and thought about all those mothers and families that were never, ever going to see their families and loved ones again. Eckert College search and rescue team would go on to be recognized newspaper articles, TV segments, books, and documentaries. Rayola and Betts weren't interviewed by the Evening Independent or the St. Petersburg Time for decades. Few even know they had been at the disaster. It didn't bother Betts. But as time went on, it started to grate on Riola. It wasn't. It was hard to leave the site knowing there's still people out there. It was harder later on, years after, when I started reading the paper, usually around the anniversary. Then in 2013, Bill DeYoung published his book Skyway: The True Story of Tampa Bay Signature Bridge and the Man Who Brought It Down. Though transportation department drivers are listed as present, Riola and Betts' names weren't mentioned. Roslett was credited with reaching in the bus to grab the Greyhound driver. I learned about Bob, Bob and Mike's involvement in this after the book was published. DeYoung said there were many divers in the water that morning. DeYoung said he later got documents from the Hillsburg County Sheriff's Office that listed Riola and Betts as the first DOT divers who had gone in. It was a chaos out there. DeYoung said it's not in the book because I didn't know they existed at the time. Riola didn't know about the book until he saw a flyer in 2008 about speaking event featuring DeYoung. His daughter Stephanie bought him a copy. He was horrified when he read the description of Eckert's divers heroically uh, diving onto the Greyhound. DOT divers are not named, barely mentioned, aside from the ter uh, territorial sling with the crew. 
Rail and his daughter went together to watch DeYoung dig the book talk, sitting in the back of the room. Rio couldn't stop shaking, crying, standing up at least a dozen times to correct DeYoung before his daughter uh, guided him to the set. His wife Sarah said the book set off an upset. He had been, it had been very harrowing to go through what he was going through. It stepped the two years of our life. Riola decided to tell his own story, correct the history. As he ages, he wants his children and grandchildren to know what he saw. Last winter, he began post photos of memories of the Skyway in Florida, see like a native group. When filmmakers uh, Frankie Vanderbo and Eve Urid put out a call for stories on the Skyway document they were making, Riola reached out, agreed to be interviewed to, to support his vet's views of what he did 40 years ago is a small part of his story. He's a husband, care of his wife in Lakeland, father and grandfather. This is just an asterisk in my life, he said. It doesn't define me by anything. Riola felt relief to tell a story and set history straight. His memory of that day still hurts. He can still remember staring in the face to victims he pulled from the wreckage. You look, he said, you pay for it, but it's a price I'm willing to pay. The Sunshine Skyway disaster remains one of Florida's most tragic accidents. Commemorate the 40-year anniversary, he wanted to tell the story of two men who received little recognition of the efforts. The information in this story was gathered over four months involving multiple interviews with Robert Riola, Michael Betts, and their family members to reconstruct the retrieval of the Skyway. We also interviewed Eckerd College Search and Rescue Team founder Bill Covert and diver Michael Roslett. We interviewed filmmaker Steve Yared and Frankie Vanderbo and author Bill DeYoung. Photographs and information Tampa Bay archives are also used. And this is uh, was posted in Tampa Bay Times and on their website, tampabay.com. Well, one thing I said about that is I remember when that happened. You know, I remember that it happened, but I, I'm trying to remember if I remember when it happened. And the thing is that, you know, just some of these movies, these bridges along Florida, they're in movies so much. And I don't remember the trust bridge are showing in that photo. Like, that's got to be the luckiest driver in the world, that one in that car at the edge. Yeah. <coughs> So this was taken out by a, a uh, freighter. freighter. Lost in the fog and rammed it. Now, is this before freighters had uh, radar, or did they have radar and just didn't pick it up? That I don't remember. Yeah, but 1980, you'd, you'd this would have been. Cluttering. You'd get a lot of clutter on your radar being that close. So I'm not sure you could. Because well, if you went under it, you're fine. But he didn't. Yeah, because he, he had to hit a smack right into one of those pilings and. And there's much left, not much left to that bus. But one of the things you get to do when you're a diver, or could do, and then this one's covered in National Geographic, Too Tough to Die, Shipwreck Discovered in the Pacific. The USS Nevada was a resilient ship. It was only a battleship to get underway during the December 7th, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor, surviving bombs and torpedoes before the burning vessel was beached and later repaired. It trained its guns German positions at Normandy on D-Day went on to support the invasion of Okinawa and Iwo Jima. At the end of the war, the USA was a central target for the first nuclear blast at Bikini Atoll, where it survived the 23-kiloton aerial detonation. The bombist, as well as a second underwater detonation, finally on July 31, 1948, following a four-day naval gunfire exercise, the toughest ship in the Second World War was deliberately sunk in the Pacific by the U.S. Navy. Now, thanks to archival research, survey more than 100 square miles of sea floor remains in Nevada have been located 65 nautical miles southwest of Pearl Harbor. The announcement was made today's release. The discovery is the result of collaboration between cultural resource firm Search Incorporated 
and the marine robot company Ocean Infinity. The remains of Nevada were located at a depth more than 15,400 feet, nearly three miles beneath the Pacific Ocean. An initial survey of the wreckage indicates a battleship came to rest upside down in a muddy plain with debris field that stretches some 2,000 feet from the hull. The bow and stern of the vessel are missing. It's really a great thing they found it, said Richard Ramsey, who served as a uh, boatswain's mate on the Nevada and Normandy through Okinawa and Iwo Jima. Uh, the coronavirus era mission began with a casual call last month between Search, who is a large marine archaeological division in Ocean Infinity, which is the vessel bristling with maritime survey equipment that just happened to be in the area where the Nevada was last known. It struck me a ship to find that particular now speak something of the human name, and particularly Americans, it would be the Nevada stubborn James Degato, your vice president and lead maritime archaeologist on the mission. Four and a half days to sink the Nevada, the 575 ship painted bright orange from its nuclear test target, flowed out to Pearl Harbor to see where the high explosive detonated on its hull. Then it was pummeled with shells launched cruiser and bombs from planes to day. Naval finally on July 31st, 1948, a single torpedo dropped by American plane 11 what Germans and Japanese could not, then Nevada to the bottom of the witness to the uh, Nevada demise. She was a grand old ship. Commander of the Pacific Fleet told the Navy reporter at the battleship went down. Only the wreck site were reported by navigators on the ship's press. This required operators on the ocean of any vessel, vessel Pacific constructor deploy underwater autonomous vehicle or uh, an autonomous underwater vehicle, AUV, to survey a 100-square-mile area of the seafloor that include the bearings provided by witnesses to the Nevada sinking. Once the wreck was located, a remotely operated vehicle, a V tethered to the vessel, sent images back in real time to searches uh, Florida office where they're currently being reviewed by archaeologists. Based on preliminary inspection of the footage, Delgado believes there was evidence for a second torpedo may have brought the USS Nevada down. We found the whole section of the hull just blasted open exposing the armor, but with the outer skin just peeled back and torn. The 13.5-inch plates of nickel-chromium steel battleship armor, Delgado marveled, still shown in the lights of the ROV. It should not have sunk the ship, said Ramsey, the day he learned the resting in the Nevada was found. Nothing that it was only battleship present at both Pearl Harbor and Normandy. In my opinion, it should have been tied up next to Missouri, he added, referencing the battleship, now memorial, on which surrender the Japan was signed. Ramsey noted Nevada was not even invited to the surrender ceremony. We figured it was really an insult to the ship. We could have signed the surrender on board. Why spend all that time and effort? And what does an what does the individual think they're going to find that they didn't already know before they painted it orange and sank it? I, I don't know. I, it, it, doesn't it kind of sound like they were bored? Hey, we got two ships out here. I was just curious. I mean, that deep, that much time and effort, and in hindsight, yeah, it'd been nice to keep it with the other vessel. But obviously they didn't want it because they nuked a little sucker and used yeah. it for target paper. You know, yeah. what value is an archaeologist going to have from that's going to be of any freaking use that you already didn't know since you got the plans for the ship to begin with? <clears throat> I, well, awkward, I suppose. Yeah. Well, let's see. who. So you've who are the two groups? Uh, Let's see, uh, uh, between the resource management firm Search, a marine robotic company, Ocean Infinity. So this is an advertisement for them. 
So they're they're trying to show what they can do. So maybe maybe they got some funding for this, or maybe they're hoping they get some funding for this, or they're just trying to. Oh, how do they? I don't know what they're going to do to to have recovered the cost of the time effort for the vehicle plus the search plus the you know what I'm saying? Who paid for all that? Well, if if it's their boats, well, if they're if it's their boats, wouldn't it been them? I mean, it didn't sound like. Let's see the. It was a collaboration. Let me see if I can find because there's one point where they talked about because they made it sound like a, a post-COVID activity. I don't understand what that means. I'm just curious. It's always turn on the investment, and I was just curious what the RT would have been. Yeah. No, I have no idea. They don't, they don't really say. Other than I mean, it'd still be cool. Be nice to be able to operate the equipment, but somebody had to make some money out of that. I don't know where that came about. I don't know. Or maybe they're, it was one of those things where they, you know, it's their ship. They're going to pay so much whether they do it or not. Maybe they had some new equipment and they wanted to show how, what kind of time it would take them. And then maybe they were kind of like, hey, you know, we got some photos here. Do you want them? It only costs you X dollars. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. And then here from uh, Scuba Dive, they've got, uh, World War II landing craft. Oh, wait, I said two. Or two landing craft off the Welsh coast uh, has been discovered in the seabed near Wells, about 100 miles thought to have gone, gone down. The MK LCT 3 was on its way from Troon to Devon on January 1943 and disappeared along with the complement of Fort crew. The Admiral T always assumed been hit in a mine or fallen in bad weather uh, and sank near the Isle of Man, but it's now been discovered off the Welsh coast Bard Sea Island. The wreck survey by Bangor and Burnmouth Universities who've been running sonar surveys waters using Bangor's Uni's search vessel Prince Madog with the aim of defining as many offshore wrecks as possible. Was that named the uh, is, is it I feel like I'm going to insult somebody, some royalty prince, my dog, but that's that ranks up there with Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> uh, acclaimed wreck diver Dr. Inns uh, McCartney said the project has resulted in many new and exciting discoveries related to both world wars. Uh, landing craft tank vessels are purpose built to land armored vehicles ashore during amphibious operations after the D Day landings. This particular vessel was constructed in Middlesbrough. Is now lying at the bottom, broken two parts, which are some 130 meters away from each other. That is a pretty beefy landing craft there. One, I, I wondered if it had something on board. Two, 130 meters apart meant it got blown up and part of it floated away. And three, why was it 100 miles from where people thought it was supposed to be at? That would be the investigative part that would be quite interesting to find out. Yeah, uh, I mean, all I can think of is a, is one of those things, the last place it was reported and there's a storm, so they assumed. But I, I would think that there had to have been an explosion. That's more than just a little simple breakup, I would think. 130 meters? I would think so. I don't know how any part of it could have floated because that's an open deck. It's full of water, or if you blew it in half, you know, what was anything on board? I'd be curious to know that, too. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a Clive Cussler book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there would there would be some uh, top secret nuclear fusion material, um, you know, unobtainium that they they had, and 
you know, German spies were trying to take it. I like the idea it was traveling with the German gold back and got hit by Oh, soul. gold. Now you got it. We could do five seasons of a, of a reality TV show on that. <laughs> I got some spray paint. We can get going now. And then this, uh, this last one is uh, U.S. chart number one. And we'll have links in the show notes. So if you want to go take a look at U.S. chart number one. And I just thought, well, what about charts two, three, and four? But I, from what I'm able to gather, and you know, I'm kind of an inland water person, so I don't really use charts. Uh, but these look pretty, pretty cool. I downloaded the PDF, which you get it for free. Uh, it seems to be kind of a push to get you to buy the the paper charts, which I'm sure if you're a, a boat captain. But what's interesting about this, especially if you're going to go into any of the uh, marine navigation fields, is this chart has all the keys for everything that are on the uh, NOAA charts. So literally everything that can be on there is in this, this document. Let me see how many pages is it? 134 pages, this chart number one. So you, know, you want to know about buoys and markers and bridges and depths, and it, it tells you how to, it gives you examples of how to read all that information. Have you ever gone through those charts like that? Most of the harbor char- uh, charts around Michigan? If you haven't, they are a lot of fun to go through. If you're looking at salvage and stuff, you want to mm-hmm. find depths, those charts are wonderful. Uh, I've got I, a couple of sections from about 40 years ago when they were current, and it's got actually where a lot of the wrecks they're now finding. My God, there's a wreck discovered. You will find them on that chart. Yeah. yeah and if and, you go back even to the 1800s, whenever they were detimbering Michigan, Mm-hmm. There's a 10-year period that at one time you could see where the piers were that went out to unload timbers. And there's a couple of them down by Grand Mere, for example. you got the right chart. It'll show you exactly where those piers went out. And some of them went out half a mile. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you had your, your major ports. You had Saugatuck, St. Joe, New Buffalo, Holland. But any stretch, yeah, any stretch that didn't have one, you still had product that needed to get out there. So the communities would invest in a pier, and that's how you got stuff like that one uh, there in Grand Mere. I think uh, was in Glen. I think a lot of that was peaches, peaches and lumber. Yeah. So cool. I I found this very interesting going through that chart. So it's available. It's in the show notes. Um, and it's, that, fun you, to, it's fun to go through those charts if you've never done uh, that. Look for well, the one it, from Pet Harbor or St. Joe. Yeah. Something and new. yeah, the, the University of Michigan, their library, which is online, has a lot of uh charts and uh peer maps. And I love just going through those because it's like in you know, Niles and in St. Joe you can see all the man made uh channels that were there. I mean, some yeah. of them are now roads, but at the time they were uh, channels because that was the easiest way to transport product. If you had something heavy, yep. uh, you could bring it up in the channel. And then also water was power. If you had a yep. mill or, or something that you needed to run, that you needed to be near a source of water. So very cool stuff. So that does it for scuba the news for this week. Um, I hate to say it, but I didn't really follow much last weekend. If anybody got in the water. So did anybody happen to get wet? Uh, we've been getting guys who have been hitting uh, Lake 16. That's been a very, very popular place. So every weekend, uh, they've also been at um, Gall Lake. 
at both of the uh, access points, one at the boat launch. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were there about two weeks ago. And another group was at the normal side that we go to already. Uh, And Lake Cora has been dove from the fire lane. Okay. So people are getting out and about. Yeah, I saw some requests for dive buddies. So I was seeing people getting in. Yep. Oh, Karen says she she got a dive in. Ramona Park, uh, Wednesday night dive group and happy birthday to Karen. That, that was her birthday, which I, I, I fully endorse uh, diving on your birthday. I think that should be a requirement. But sadly, I have not been able to and I won't be able to this weekend. But I do have some time. I've uh, it's, it's, Our work has been pretty fortunate. We're, uh, we're continuing to work. But the uh, senior management has asked everybody but it use up a bunch of vacation time. So what a better use of vacation time than diving. So I'm going to try and get some dives in here. In fact, I was off today and I'm off tomorrow, but it's going to be non-diving mowing. <laughs> I got my yard work done yesterday. Oh, gosh. Yeah, here, here's a little tangent. I've got a push mower I bought new about three years ago. And I try to do maintenance on it, but it's slowly been acting like the fuel filter has been getting full, you know, clogged. And I looked, I couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. Finally today, I could mow for about 20 minutes and then it would just stall out. So I'm convinced it's a fuel filter. I finally, I, I had to take a, take the carburetor, gas tank, everything off. Guess where the fuel filter is in this damn thing? Not a- it's in the bottom of the gas tank. <laughs> Who, whose freaking idea is that? Why? So, and, and I don't, I, I can see the filter. I can't reach it. I don't have any tool <clears throat> long enough to reach it. I had to use my cell phone camera. So if you're following me on Facebook, you can see my, my post today. Now I've, I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to find, I think at the shop, I've got some, uh, uh, you know, sutures, uh, not suture. What do they call those? Uh, the needle nose, the long yeah. neck needle. I've got a set and I've got some optics and magnets. Yeah. If well, like, I've got it? some for, for the role for working on the robots. We'll do those. Okay. Forceps. Yeah, that's it, Karen. Thanks. Roach clips. <laughs> that's for, that's for the roach clips. Uh, but the, yeah, forceps to get in there. Uh, cause it's like, that's insane. And then, and somebody was telling me that they're just weighted in there. Well, I don't care if it's weighted or not. I've, I've beat that against the table and everything. <laughs> thinking I can maybe knock it loose. It, this is, you know what it did? It probably saved, you know, MTD, uh, four cents or something by putting it in there so guess what kind of fuel filter is going to get put back on there not that shitty one in there well i'm gonna yeah well oh you just cut the line put the little one like yeah exactly that's what that's what you need yeah that's all you need the other item that'll screw you up will be that air filter that air filter start getting clogged it it almost mimics the same thing as you got a clogged Mm -hmm. uh fuel filter well, I, I did pull the air filter off because I, I that was easier to get to. But the instructions in these manual are, you know, don't fart, don't light things on fire, you know, don't touch the blades when it's spinning. I mean, there's like nothing useful <laughs> in any of these manuals. So uh, I didn't, you know, I, you know, so I finally figured out how to get the air filter off. And that need that when I saw that, I'm like, well, maybe this is the problem. So I got that cleaned up and then tried to run it again, but it's just not getting enough fuel. Uh, then they're saying run non-ethanol ethanol gas. So that, that'd be good too. If I could find where the hell to get any, I, I think everything's got 10% now. 
Nope. Um, a lot of marine grade. Oh. Because a lot well, of the some... marine engines have to run a different. So uh, try some of the marinas. Well, the one thing I've started doing on my chainsaw is you can buy the stuff pre-mixed in a can. And, you know, it's a little bit more expensive than buying the gas and oil separately and mixing it. But damn, it's too convenient. It's like $5 for this tall can. And you know, I can fill the chainsaw up two or three times. And I've been doing that like crazy too. That's that's another project I've been playing with a chainsaw, getting my uh, inner mass murderer going when I should be mowing. I'm I'm, I'm trying to fool myself. If I get all these home projects done, then I've got more. I've got time banked for scuba diving. Well, maybe this will be the year you get out there and get a lot more diving. In. Well, they're starting to reduce the restrictions, so uh, we can now, as of this weekend. And I hate to say it, but I'm skeptical of any politician when they give you something back they shouldn't they shouldn't take away. But groups of ten are now fine. So, well, I shall continue to be the lone wolf and stay secured in my missile. Right. Well, I don't. I don't blame you. I mean, the, to me, this is an odds game, and I think with a little bit of education, they could have had a lot more compliance with some of the activities they're doing if just explained what it is instead of just saying "do what I say" because. Nothing gets somebody as rebellious as dictating what you want them to do. Well, I, two I'm just gonna, ten, you have twenty. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to just be laid back till they find some type of medication that actually might work without experimenting on my body. And well, if and I need one, at least I'll have that respirator resuscitator yeah. ad nauseum. So I have a lot better chance than if I didn't have all that stuff. Well, I'm looking forward to a uh, a vaccine for this. But I am not naive enough to think that they're going to have something in the next six months. Anybody who thinks they're going to have it in six months, I think you're fooling yourself. And then RNA vaccine, which has never worked. Get this, it's never worked. They've never gotten an RNA vaccine to work yet. So why would this be the one? The reason why they're they're touting it is because they're hoping to get some money pushed their way. That's the thing. But You've you know, got to admit, though, this has got the world's freaking attention. And yeah. you've got over a hundred different groups working on one item, because yeah. whoever gets it first is going to make a lot of money. Well, and that's the other thing is I think if the federal government or whatever government, Australian government, German government, whatever government that uh, puts the money in, they should also benefit. It shouldn't just go to the pharmaceuticals got it, and they they just go, hey, look at us, we're rich. You know, there there needs to be something. You know. A little bit equitable, you know, because if this thing's a thousand dollars a dose, what the who's who can afford that? Yeah. Uh, and then the time to make the vaccine. Okay, so say they get it through the FDA, the whole process, whatever accelerated they got to come up with. You know, just in the U.S. here, we've got three hundred million plus doses that you need to generate, and then they're all held uh, no liability. So, you know. Even if the virus is the uh, antidote's effective, if there's any problems with it, um, it's not my, they're not going to claim any responsibility. So right there, you've got non-starter with many people. Well, you're living in interesting times. Yeah, and this has happened before, but uh, the uh, yeah, and here we're getting a little political, so you may want to fast forward. But the uh, <laughs> the Hong Kong flu, which happened to be named after Hong Kong, I'm not saying it started there, but that's what the name was. Uh, they that happened. What was that sixty nine? I don't even remember hearing anything about that. That wasn't covered in any of my school books, but uh, pretty similar uh, 
type of uh, agent. You didn't have Facebook back then. Come on. No, that's true. Well, it was all those hippies at Woodstock. That's what really caused it. Yeah, Karen's saying the big question is whether antibodies can provide perfection. Uh, and they don't know. I mean, this is part of it is, is, is that we don't even know what this virus is long term. Is this like malaria where you, you've got it and you've always got it and it comes back and does something else? Is it, you know, you get it once and you don't get it again? Is this going to be like the cold or the flu? I well, mean, the they've, already, that, they've already had people who have had it and got it again. Right. But did well, they, they get it again? Yeah. So they don't know why that person got it. The second part, and the one that I think we're concerned with as divers is it does some nasty damage to your lung. Yeah. Yeah. And it does damage so even athlete, if you don't have symptoms. Right. That's why the athletes who have this or have mild cases, it remains to be seen once they start getting back into the physical training, like it's going to be suddenly, oh, wait a minute, they can't play to that same level because their lungs are damaged. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's more than that we don't know than we know. But we're starting to see things, certain things that are that are good news for us. Uh, I mean, the fatality rate has been lower. Uh, the infection rate seems to be lower. And some of that has been that it hasn't been quite as uh, easy to pass on as we had thought. So. Uh, the surface contact tends to not be to to pass on surfaces as quickly as we had thought it might. Uh, the CDC just updated their guidelines this week on that. Uh, I just which, like them to get their act together because you've got experts on left and right and in the middle, and they well, always don't necessarily agree. So well, which expert do you believe? And I'm sorry for the rest of the world. It's a political season in the U.S., and there's no in between. It's Team A. And Team B, and anybody who's not on A and B is screwed. <laughs> That's what it comes. I think. I think they tend to. I, I'm not really happy with uh, either group right now because I think you don't necessarily have to. Like you can social distance. You know, we can do best practices, but I think we can also train people to follow those best practices. And we we didn't need to completely decimate. And when I say decimate, decimates ten percent. We've done much more than 10%. We've done 30, 40% of our economy this year is going to be completely trashed. And the ones that are least able to survive it are going to be the small businesses. Yeah. Well, I know Whirlpool is already uh, projecting layoffs Yeah. and reduction in force. Well, and, that, and that's a problem of the, the corporate structure that we have where, you know, you know a pandemic's no excuse. You still have to make money. So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to preserve some sort of profits. Plus, they're durable goods. So in the case of Whirlpool, every product's got a 10-year lifespan. And the reality is is that you don't need that brand-new, shiny, new refrigerator unless it dies. So you're not going to upgrade for fashion when you have a hard time paying for food, which is going to be more expensive this year, which we could do an episode. We could do an episode just on that. Not wouldn't be diving related, but you know how does how does a farmer have to do, to uh, sell his cows at half the price yet the store the price for the same product in the stores is four times the price? Who in the middle is making a whole bunch of money on this? Well, it ain't the truckers. No, it's not the truckers. It's not the. Uh... It ain't the people stocking the shelves. No, that's for sure. So who's left? Yeah, there's some middle person there. Yeah, the science is developing. We'll 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 eventually figure this out. But there's also 
people on both sides of the U.S. political spectrum who don't want anybody to figure it out till after the election's over. And, you know, Ralph Emanuel uh, said, don't let any disaster go unutilized, to paraphrase, and uh, that's what's going on. So every pet project that either political party has had is now going to be thrown into this mix to see who can get it. So, and unfortunately, that's going to be at the tune of about seven billion, seven trillion dollars, which is uh, completely insane. One, well, the last one they just passed in one week was eighteen hundred pages. Can you read eighteen hundred pages and figure out you, what it you is? Can't. Well, and, and, and again, if it's not going directly for research and helping people, all these pet pork projects, I I just cannot phantom how they can justify some of those. Yeah. Well, that was a non-starter. That was that's a that eighteen hundred pages is a bill set to never pass. Nobody wants that bill to go through. But it was it was for one side can say, "Hey, we tried to get it in," and then the other side can say, "We stopped it," and it's a start of a negotiation. Because the odds are, and we don't know how bad it is, but at some point they're going to have to they're going to end up doing another bill. But I still can't figure out where all this free money is coming from. I'm, I'm just going to say. At the end of this, our national debt just went right up the roof. How the yeah. hell are they going to pay for this? And if you look at some of the aspects, it's already you look at the economic balance. Who owns our debt? China. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Japan's got a debt that's insane, and we're joining them. So we're moving more towards Japan and Greece every day. They're the ones with the high GDP debts. I, well, mean, I, just I, never... stay, I just want to stay away from being Venezuela. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I, I have, I've like, why have any debt? Why not we just go back to zero and be fiscally responsible, not do it? But hey, you know, there you too, go. Too, too many people think there's too much to gain because even as ridiculous as our debt was, it wasn't huge GDP. You could knuckle down and eventually pay it off. But at some point, you can't grow the economy. And guess what? We're here now. So, well. yeah, hey, happy news. <laughs> Woohoo! And that's why we scuba dive because I don't ha- I don't give a shit about a- economics <laughs> when I'm underwater. <laughs> I know you edit this part out, <laughs> and yeah, we'll the people see. are I'm... still here listening to you. Us, you, I may be too lazy. We'll have to see. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay. Well, I, uh, I mean, do you have anything you want to plug before we get on out of here? Nope, we'll just go ahead and pick up our safety stuff next week, and uh, we'll get some of those groaners caught up next week. Well, we'll we'll do we'll do the groaners this week. I've got them all uh, <laughs> kind of kind no, of kind of lined up. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a we'll get a few of them. Uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. At Twitter, at scuba obsessed. Our website is www.scubaobsessed.com forward slash. No, just that's just it. That's our website. <laughs> Man, I'm tired. Ah, so and and then thank everybody in the chat room who's hung along with them and and I know I've missed a lot of it. Looks like they've had some great conversations going on in there. Derek, I said, she said, mow the lawn. I heard you should go scuba diving. Uh, that's what I'm hoping for. So, are well, you ready for that time of the show? I absolutely. Yeah. So we'll we'll do a couple little warm ups and then we've got uh, some jokes and and I think we've done versions of these but heck nobody will remember uh, so where do scuba divers go to relax after work dive bars 
<laughs> of course, in in COVID nineteen days, what is that? Is it like you drive through? You can do pickup now. Our bars in town, you can pick up alcohol. I don't. Uh, and then what's a diver's pet peeve? The bends that really makes his blood boil. And then what is a top job requirement for a deep sea scuba diver position? The ability to work under pressure. And then I then I think this this will have to be the cherry on top of the sundae, or is that the fly on top of the uh, dog turd? I'm not sure. Uh, Bill and Harry have been dive buddies since college. Almost every weekend they went diving, summer and winter, dry suit and shorty. On one rare occasion, Bill invited Harry for his home for dinner. Bill was married. Harry was not. During dinner, Harry noticed every time Bill spoke to his wife, he used very loving terms. Honey, my love, darling, sweetheart, pumpkin, and so on. It was when Bill's wife was clearing away the dishes and carried them to the kitchen when Harry remarked, that's really nice. After all these years you've been married, you still keep calling your wife by those pet names. Bill looked around quickly and whispered, to tell you the truth, Harry, I forgot her name years ago. The kiss of death. Yeah. I don't know. After the trouble I'm in from last week, I don't know if I should should have said that one. Well, the storm is always good. (laughs) Yeah. Can I I bring my dog dive gear into the doghouse? Well, you saw that one, didn't you, about the storm? No. Oh, the, oh the storm? Oh, yeah, storm? yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah we'll, we'll save that one for next week. <laughs> so until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. In the water and out.